The girl that I met at the dance, she dropped something on her way out. What was it? Oh, that's easy. A wallet. No. Oh, a fish! Welcome to the Graveyard Slot, where we talk about movies past their prime time. Here, we revisit old favorites with a fresh perspective to see if they deserve more hype or if they should stay buried. I'm Sohini. And I'm Sarah, and today we're talking about A Cinderella Story. A Cinderella Story follows Sam as she navigates meeting her secret admirer while living under her stepmother's thumb, and she struggles with revealing her own identity to the boy who turns out to be the most popular guy in school. This movie was released in 2004. It was directed by Mark Rosman, who did another Hilary Duff movie in the year following, and written by Lee Dunlap, who went on to write a few other teen rom-coms. I think it's safe to say that we both really liked this movie growing up. So we were pretty surprised to see that it has a 12% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, which seemed pretty harsh. We weren't sure if this is because the film is aimed at a younger female demographic because those kind of films do tend to be easily dismissed as predictable, cliche, or sanitized. And you see other genres being criticized for the elements that are inherent in them as well. But usually teen films, especially teen films for girls, are more often victims of this kind of critic. Yeah, exactly. People tend to be especially harsh when it comes to this type of genre, I feel. Like you wouldn't necessarily criticize an action film for being unrealistic because you expect those elements to come with the genre. I think... What matters is how these elements are executed and what bothers us the most is the assumption that these are inherently bad. Yeah, you shouldn't go into a teen film complaining about elements that are inherent to the genre. Rather, it's more productive to look at how the storytelling works within those limitations. Exactly. So for this episode, we want to put our biases, whether positive or negative, aside and see if uh, this movie really deserves such a low rating or if it's a product of prejudice against the genre and target audience. One of the reviews I found does mention the target audience. So this is a review from the Miami Herald. It reads, The sort of entertainment that makes you happy to be a grown-up and able to avoid the current onslaught of trite, lazy, unimaginative films aimed at teenagers. I feel like this is exactly the sort of perspective I was talking about before, where you're looking at films aimed at children, but you're looking at them from an adult's perspective. Because the kind of things you as an adult are going to find entertaining and creative and fun isn't necessarily the same type of things kids are going to like. But that doesn't mean that the things kids like are inherently of less quality. Yeah, I think my problem with that kind of perspective is a little bit different. It's this idea that kids don't deserve good movies. A lot of these reviews say, oh, this is obviously a movie for kids, which translates to this movie's bad. Yeah, it shouldn't be synonymous. Yeah, I'm over here thinking like, why are we feeding these kids bad movies in the first place? Why is that the expectation? Why is that the norm? I actually don't think that is the norm. I think there's just this generalization, right? Obviously, we're here talking about movies that we think are better than their reputation. So clearly, I think the 
these movies are pretty good and they are for children. So I don't quite understand why we have this expectation that movies for kids should be bad. Like, why would we want our kids to have that? I don't quite <laughs> understand. The thing with this review, though, I do think some aspects of the movie is, quote unquote, tried lazy and unimaginative. But as a whole, I don't think it deserves this review saying that, you know, we're lucky we don't got to watch this movie. Yeah, I agree with you. I do acknowledge that parts of this movie could have been better, but expecting kids to have the same taste as you is like you trying baby food and then saying it tastes mushy and it's disgusting. Yeah, I don't think this movie's brand, exactly. One of the reviews I read is slightly less harsh. <laughs> it's from the San Francisco Chronicle and it says, it's not a terrible movie, just a disappointingly pleasant one. And I agree with this one a lot more because it acknowledges that this movie does have some redeeming qualities. Like it's not terrible. It's a fine movie. But even within its limitations, it could have been more creative. Yeah, I agree. Although the phrase disappointingly pleasant, when you put it that way, makes sense. But to me, part of the pleasure of this movie is the fact that it's so fun. And it's so visually engaging as well. There's something about the way it looks that I really enjoy. So I think disappointingly pleasant to me would be more fitting for a movie that's more boring. Which, funnily enough, is the word I would use to describe the main plot of this movie. I guess it depends on which element yeah. the review is referring to. I think as a whole, it's actually pretty fair. Yeah. I watched this movie for the first time as a kid and I hadn't seen this as an adult so this is a new experience in that sense and I have to say not a lot of my views have changed. I think I've just recognized the parts that I don't like that at the time I just didn't notice. I think I had a similar experience to yours. I watched the movie first time as a kid as well but I've seen it a couple more times over the years including as an adult but I didn't pay as close attention. It was one of those movies that I would just throw on in the background. Yeah it's very comforting. Yeah if I wanted some white noise which is not a comment on the diversity of this movie which we can talk about <laughs> later. Watching it again paying close attention and giving it a lot of scrutiny, I also realized it has its faults, which I didn't notice as a kid. These flaws do stick out now, but it's not a movie I regret watching again. Yeah. Overall, I've noticed flaws, but I still had fun. So we'll be discussing this movie chronologically again, and we open on a fairy tale fake out, <laughs> which I think is very fun. I'm on the same page as you. I really like the fairy tale vibe of the opening, but then it subverts the expectations and we go from the actual castle to the miniature castle in the snow globe and yeah. we clearly have this impression that this is more of a modern fairy tale with mm -hmm. smog and a car instead of a carriage and I thought that was a brilliant start to a film that aims to take this classic fairy tale and turn it on its head. We get a whole montage about what her life is like with her dad and they have this family at the diner that her dad owns 
And he just seems to be a very admired man. (laughs) I'm going to jump in straight to the conspiracy theories here. Oh god, here we go. I have to wonder, how good can the dad be if he doesn't realize how his new wife treats his kid? I was going to say, actually, I think it's the marriage to Fiona that leads to him shifting his attention off of Sam a little bit. Because there's this moment where they take a photo after the wedding and Sam is standing right in front of her dad and Fiona masterminds this little plot where she drops the bouquet (laughs) and Sam bends to pick it up and that's when they take the photo. And how can he not notice that his daughter is not in that photo? So I feel like on one hand, it feels a little bit dumb. Like, how can you not see? But maybe it's just an indication that he's not really paying as much attention to Sam as he did before. Because from Sam's perspective, he gets into the marriage because he thinks that Sam needs a mother. But maybe it was more selfish than that. Maybe it was just that he liked Fiona. Yeah. I think it's also very important to remember that this is all from Sam's perspective. Obviously, we see him as pretty sweet and loving, but this is how Sam sees him. And she only knew him as a very young child. Your perception of your parent when you were, what, what, like she was six years old or something, is very different from the reality. Of course, it seems like the people at his diner adore him just as much. But it's something to chew on, how much her dad's wholesomeness was genuine and how much was Sam's rose-colored glasses. And I just think this can be such an interesting part of this obviously this would be a very different story but if as the movie goes on sam starts discovering this side of her dad that she never really knew if this movie is about a coming of age story because this is about how sam comes into herself right i think it would have been interesting that's a great point actually and i think it would have been even more interesting if she had realized that she's idealized her dad too much and that if there had been a point where she'd realized i don't know maybe fiona bossed my dad around a lot and he never had the courage to stand up for himself and if that had been her motivation to then stand up to Fiona and be like it's not that I'm gonna be like my dad I'm gonna be different from my dad yes I think that would have been a bit more powerful for sure I would love that we get to a scene where the dad reads her a bedtime story and it makes me very sad. I think it may be knowing that her life will be so devoid of that care soon and how this is kind of the last real moment she'll have as a kid. The sweetness of this scene makes it all the more painful. And it's not even like the tragedy later. It's specifically when they're being sweet. Yeah, I think it it is a painful point of contrast, this loving little scene. And it's the little things we take for granted getting to spend quality time with our loved ones and the fact that we don't really see this going forward in Sam's life is pretty painful for sure I think it's also really funny that even grown-up Sam later still believes in going to Princeton yes based on the offhanded comment that her dad made that princesses (laughs) go where the princes go to Princeton and she's just made it her life's mission to get into Princeton doesn't even apply to any other colleges that's her plan a she's getting in she's no other colleges exist it's so funny it's hilarious but also (laughs) it's a little sad because this is the last connection she has with her dad and it's something that's still so tangled up in make-believe because she was just that young when she lost him yeah fair enough i guess it's a good indication of where she's at mentally yeah a part of her is probably stuck in that moment that's a great point we jump to eight years later and we see sam's life at home now 
and the stepmother and stepsisters are introduced in a bit more detail. Yes. I quite liked the first scene where Sam's stepmother is yelling at her that it's breakfast time, so bring me my breakfast. I thought that was a great <laughs> little twist. I, I love that. I do really enjoy all the minor characters in this movie, including the stepsisters and, of course, especially the stepmother. I think the sisters are peculiar enough to be entertaining. Like, they're not just mean. They do synchronize swimming. Not very well, but they do do it. All I could think while we were watching the sisters in the pool is what is the point of this? It's not adding anything to the plot. It's not telling me anything about the characters except that they are very unsynchronized. Yes, it does tell us that. But also partly to show that they're the kind of people who would spring for private lessons for synchronized swimming, a sport that the sisters aren't even good at. I really like that characteristic to Fiona and her kids. I think they did a pretty good job of showing how Fiona's burned through their money or is burning through their money. Her changed looks with the new hair and obviously the plastic surgery. How she's redecorated the house with all the pink trims and lawn decor. Oh yeah. And the elephant. I think it's called topiary. Yes. But yeah, I think the synchronized swimming lesson is just another example of that. Frivolous spending. That's actually a great point. I didn't see it that way initially, but actually... I see your point. Yeah, and of course we can't forget the extravagant Norwegian salmon. Oh yes, all the way from Norwegian. <laughs> <laughs> I love that line because I think it's a great way of showing how out of touch Fiona is. Yeah. And I thought the dialogue was actually doing a really great job of giving us little hints and indications about these characters' personalities. For sure. But then again... The springing for the lessons, I can understand. But at one point, they're just splashing around. And after a while, it's a bit like, can we move on? Fiona's values and point of view is also pretty well illustrated by one of her first lines in the movie, which is, people who have extra water have extra class. For her, it's all about appearances. That's just how she sees things. It's what she believes. This even manifests in how her kids gave Shelby Cummings a fake Prada bag, which is um, some backstory that we get in a throwaway line. They've been taught value lies and public perception instead of what comes from within by Fiona. And I like how prominent that is. Yeah, I, I hadn't considered this either. But now that you pointed out, there is more to these characters than is immediately noticeable. They dress quite flashy. They act quite over the top. So it's easy to get distracted. But there is actually a reason. Yeah, there's a rhyme and reason. Especially because considering, I think, how Fiona was dressed when she first met Sam's dad. Yeah. She was a lot more understated. So maybe it's just an effect of getting all of this money all at once. But obviously the values had to be there. So maybe it was just, I guess she married for the money. That was the point. <laughs> the part that I wonder is if she cut into Sam's birthday on purpose. Yeah, exactly. Because obviously that was supposed to illustrate that she literally took the attention away from Sam. But I do wonder if that was that meticulously planned by Fiona. Yeah, it would be funny if in the background of the other scenes with Sam and her dad, we just saw Fiona <laughs> standing there ominously in the background with like binoculars or something. Like, I'm watching you. So I'm on my way. <laughs> so in the present, we get Carter's entrance. I really like his character. I think we both agreed he was our favorite. My favorite for sure. I think he's a great foil to Sam because he's so unabashedly himself. Yeah. And I know he auditions for all these different plays and stuff. 
he is never really dressed as himself. And Sam sees this as hiding behind different personas. Yeah. But for me, it came off as him being so passionate about this acting thing that he doesn't really care how he's dressed. Whereas Sam being embarrassed about what Carter is wearing is a really great indication of her attitude towards school because I feel like she doesn't want to draw too much attention to herself. So she pushes Carter to put on something a little bit less <laughs> noticeable. Yeah, that's a great take. I had never thought about it that way. I do think that it's a sign that Carter is able to express himself mm -hmm. through his craft and isn't ashamed about it but maybe he's using that as an excuse to cover up a part of himself that he is less proud of but your take is actually really good during Carter's entrance, we meet his dad. <laughs> yes, I actually love his I dad. This part. I didn't remember him much, but watching it this time around, I realized how supportive he is of Carter because he knows he's going to audition. He wishes him luck. Oh and my then God, yeah. we also learned that his parents have given him three cars that he totaled, yet his yeah. dad lends him his Mercedes once again later <laughs> on in the film. I adore his dad he's so cute yeah this scene always cracks me up because of what happens later yes it's a great bit of foreshadowing and the dad is so nice and pleasant and supportive that you feel bad because yeah. you know what's about to happen and he's there taking care of the car that's literally the first thing you see him doing yes he's like meticulously polishing <laughs> it <laughs> also how rich is carter's family that they gave him three cars yeah that too <laughs> but yeah i agree with you my favorite part is also carter and sam's relationship how it's a pretty well-rounded and balanced friendship they rib each other they help each other and it's not just carter as the best friend minor character helping sam in her journey exactly she's just as involved and helpful or trying to help with what's going on in his life i absolutely love that he has a full life and his own subplots and everything yes exactly in this kind of movie i found that it's really easy for this kind of character to become a little bit flat and one-dimensional and oh, yeah. it gives the impression that the character exists only to serve the purpose of the protagonist but in this case like you said he has his own subplot and character development and he has a personality yeah <laughs> which i think is missing from some of our main characters <laughs> in this movie i think he's great i really like that their friendship is mutual and that they are there for each other yeah i was really surprised at how well done their friendship was yeah so we finally get to the school mm -hmm. and what we encounter here is that there's a school announcement and i think it fits pretty well though it might be too much on top of the voiceover especially because everything announced over the speakers is already well established by the movie i do like it though i think i just like it because of the tone it adds and the character who's doing the announcements how she has that little back and forth with the teacher about what she says on the speakers i think that's a really fun aspect but as a storytelling tool i do think it's unnecessary yeah i think it serves the dual purpose of introducing that character because she's gonna become a plot point later on for Carter. I do like it as a storytelling tool. I like it much better than the voiceover we got in the beginning, which is just cliche and overdone at this point. Although, 
this school announcement thing is also pretty common. So that's why it caught my attention because I can forgive one, but both. <laughs> <laughs> Two strikes to use a, a baseball term. Baseball <laughs> is important in this movie. The third strike, unfortunately, will be Austin. But we'll get to that later. Mm -hmm. I do also like how the students at the school are pretty varied. Although the popular kids are pretty one note, to be clear, all of their depictions are very stereotypical, but at least it's portrayed as a hodgepodge of many different groups than just the two. Yeah, my issue is while I appreciate the differentiation between the <laughs> nerds, they still create these caricatures. Yeah. I feel like this is a general complaint I have with this movie is that it pigeonholes the characters so much. Yeah. The popular kids can only like football and Terry is only interested in sci-fi and trying to communicate with aliens or whatever it is. <laughs> it doesn't let the characters be more nuanced and have multiple interests. Yeah. And later on, Austin also makes this comment about how he can't be both people, how he can't like football <laughs> and poetry. And in the same breath, almost, he's also saying things like, oh, I don't care about who wins Homecoming King. You're saying you want to be more than this one dimensional character, but then you're also insulting people who care about their thing. Yeah. It's a bit hypocritical. Very. If my point is got off track there. I am also often distracted by how awful Austin is, so don't you worry <laughs> about that. <laughs> but we're finally introduced to this plot of Princeton Girl and Nomad. Sam as Princeton Girl has been texting back and forth with this anonymous guy who she only knows as Nomad. All they know about each other is that they go to the same school. This movie reveals Austin's identity pretty early on, yeah. but I guess the point is showing the audience that there's more to him <laughs> than just a Jock, supposedly. Yeah, he is not a great human. Mm. For example, there are a lot of jokes in this movie that are very of the time that, and do not fly now, at least not where you want to be. One we get is when Austin and Sam are texting. So it's supposed to be witty banter. And what he says is, you're not a guy, right? And says something like, if you are, I'll deck you. And I really love that subtle homophobia, like the real flavor <laughs> of the 2000s, right? It's definitely of the time. And I don't have any real opinions on the montage of them talking through text, except for the fact that Austin quotes Tennyson to say goodbye. And oh my God, can he be more of a cliched, pretentious teenage boy? He is so such a pretentious, tortured poet character. It really made me roll my eyes. I'm rolling my eyes at the memory of it even. What's important here is that Nomad invites Sam to meet at the dance to finally reveal their identities and meet in person. Yes. Okay, before we get to that, do we think we would have liked Nomad slash Austin when we were younger? Mm, that's a good question. As far as I can remember, it's not that I necessarily fangirled over him or anything, but at the time, I did like that he gave Sam attention. I guess I was projecting <laughs> the quiet average girl that you don't notice kind of thing onto Sam. So I was rooting for him to get together with Sam. I think that's a good point. A lot of these male love interests and teens rom-coms aimed at girls focus mainly on the fact that finally there's a guy who's paying attention to you and watching these movies back as an adult it just feels really lazy and this is where I agree with the reviewer Same. this is very lazy just give me anything and it's the glorification of the male gaze as well especially during the scene where Sam enters the dance and all eyes are on her at the time when I was a kid watching it 
it was the part where I'd squeal and be like, oh my god, <laughs> look at Austin, he's mesmerized by her and whatever. But now it just made me cringe. Why does she only deserve appreciation when a guy is paying attention to her? So going back, we get Sam and Carter talking about this decision of whether or not Sam should go and meet Nomad at the dance. What's happening here is that they're playing baseball and I kind of like that they show Sam playing baseball and that she's bad at it. It just seemed nice that she was probably just doing it for fun and maybe to seek comfort to do something she used to do with her dad. I was worried for a second that they're going to do the whole not like other girls tomboy kind of thing with her character, but they don't really. She's just regular, which maybe means she's a pretty boring character, but when I was watching this, I was mostly relieved that I didn't have to sit through a possible shittier version of her. Yes, that's true. There are little hints of gender stereotypes because yeah. Sam earlier on makes this comment about how having a single dad doesn't make her an expert in the makeup and fashion department, which, <laughs> you know, is a little bit stereotypical but I agree I think they sort of managed to avoid the not like the other girls thing with Sam's character at least because for the dance she dresses up and it's not like she has any trouble yeah. transitioning from that tomboy image to a more traditionally feminine image it's not like she's like oh this dress is so uncomfortable or oh I hate having my hair down she can do both things she's happy with both things and that's actually quite nice to see yeah it's like they started out thinking they were gonna do this kind <laughs> of not like other girls character and then they just know never went with it which is weirdly a plus <laughs> that they forgot that little detail they forgot to do the same with austin yeah. he's far too deep into the not like the other girls thing oh god we'll get to austin in time we can't uh let's just push him to the side for a little while yes. oh actually you know what no let's get him back already <laughs> in the scene oh yes sam accidentally hits or that's i'm taking credit away from her sam does an amazing job and hits the <laughs> ball out of the park and austin sees it happen and he goes damn a girl hit that and again very 2000s straight up sexist <laughs> wonderful yep and the follow-up comment just adds the cherry on top where he's like now that's impressive he he's got this misogyny against feminine women <laughs> You know what's funny? Somehow, most of these comments are coming just from Austin. Like, it's coming from other people as well, but he takes up a lot of it. Yeah. It's shown as a cool trait of his, yeah. isn't it? Great, don't you want to date this guy who's casually <laughs> homophobic and sexist and classist and it drives me up the wall. It's just hard to look past. Even if we don't nitpick to that degree, he just overall comes off as quite a bad person. On multiple occasions, he witnesses his friends just being straight up bullies and he never says anything. He doesn't even express a little bit of discomfort. Yeah. And it kind of baffles me that he's supposed to be the Prince Charming in this situation. I mean, with these movies, I can never respect these douchebags for the heart of gold characters because like, why are they hanging out with these assholes? I get being a victim of circumstance or growing up with certain people, but his friends are literally bullying Sam for having her job, being in a different socioeconomic class. It's so awful. Awful. It immediately puts me off anyone who are friendly to these people. It's incredibly jarring almost to watch and to have to think that this is a cool trait of our love interest. Yeah, this is supposed to be a character we're rooting for. Yeah. And part of it might be explained by Austin's background. We learn in the next scene that Austin has had his future decided by his dad since he was nine years old. And that might explain his complacency to some degree because if he's 
just thinking he's got no control over his life so what's the point he's just accepted circumstances as they are but i feel like we can only root for a character like this for so long before he just starts to come off as a bad person so like you were talking about the scene where his friends are making fun of sam for working at a diner he's just sitting there and i understand not having the courage to stand up to your friends but at least express a little bit of discomfort at least maybe apologize to sam in private afterwards and say you know i'm sorry for my friends something like that yeah. so that we can see that you're trying at least you're giving it an effort but he just seems like he doesn't care at all yeah weirdly enough the part that bugs me is the fact that they do this and then afterwards he has no qualms about still being friends with them exactly the part that i'm confused by if i'm spending time with someone and they're rude to my waiter i'm <laughs> i'm gonna be not seeing them ever again and it would make sense if they're the ones chasing him or something and he's trying yeah. to shake them off a little and distance himself that's what i thought it was gonna be but no they're just his genuine friends it's so confusing yeah, he hangs out with them willingly and it taints the character. It makes it hard to root for him. You know, his background to me, it's less that I feel bad for him and more that I find it laughable that I'm supposed to feel bad for him when he's obviously pretty well off when our main character is Sam who's working her ass off. Okay, I understand that it's something that he's gonna have to get over because that's what movies are for. It's a character arc. Except that we don't get that. We don't have a well-written arc for him. And we don't even know if he gets any better as a person. All we know is he's brave enough to kiss Sam now and that's it. I think I immediately checked out when I remembered what his storyline is. It's a giant cliche and it's not done in a remotely interesting way. All of his and his dad's lines sound like they're copy-pasted from some textbook from some acting 101 class oh, like they really don't go out of their way to make austin or his dad into any semblance of fully realized characters or even to make them fun the way they did the rest of the characters they made the stepmother and stepsister so fun and they couldn't do anything with austin and his dad <laughs> even with shelby fucking cummings she was a shitty person it's so stereotypical but she was fun at least she doesn't pretend to be otherwise yeah she knows who she is and she owns it and and that might be not great, but at least she's not fake. Yeah. I can see your point about Austin. I did feel bad for him because this is a real predicament that people face. In that you might have an immense amount of privilege. You might have money. You might have a comfortable upbringing. But if there's these constrictions from your family that you can't pursue what's really of your interest. It's a very real problem. Yeah. So I get that. But it's all undermined by the fact that Austin is just a bad character. He's, yeah. he's a bad person. Maybe if he was a better person, I would forgive this bad storyline. I was thinking the very least they could do is show him struggling between the status quo versus wanting to be a better person. If they at least showed that conflict a little bit and him trying to stand up to his friends yeah. at the end even just one line telling his friend off it would have been a little bit easier to accept this character here's the thing I don't think they're even trying to make us believe that he's changed for the better at the end yeah. point is we don't get this art yeah his changing his mind actually is just to serve his own purpose for sure but we do get one fun line from Austin which is you need a wax 
<laughs> Always makes that you laugh. That was a very clever bit of dialogue. See, they could have had him be a little like. Imagine if he were throwing out these asides throughout the movie, where like his friends are saying some dumb shit, and then he's like throwing out an aside that they can't even understand, and then Sam's there like serving them, and she laughs at it, and you can see that connection between them. You know what I'm saying? Oh, that would have been awesome. That would have added so much more nuance to the characters and made them so much more fun. Right. But for context, Austin works. At his dad's car wash company, and Sam arrives there in Fiona's car, and Austin says, "You need a wax." <laughs> and Sam thinks he's talking about her, but of course, he's talking about the car. Another fun line we get here is when the stepsisters show up and tell Sam that Fiona's looking for her. Yes. Sam asks, "Like, well, where is she?" And they say, "She's at home baking." <laughs> we immediately get a smash cut to Fiona in a tanning bed, and the twist <laughs> and play on words always tickles me because, of course, it's a subversion of the idea that Fiona's at home baking food is expected of a stereotypical quote-unquote woman in the home. And there's these clever bits of dialogue that make it feel like someone else took over the writing for a second, but then we slip. Right back to these cliched lines, and I just wish we had more of the nuance and more of the wittiness. And the scene with Fiona in front of her tanning bed is where she tells Sam that she can't go to the dance because she's got to work at the diner for the night. And we follow this up with Fiona telling Sam that she's gonna be back by twelve sharp. And of course, this is. Their version of the turning into a pumpkin at midnight thing from Cinderella. Turning into a pumpkin? I mean, something turns into a pumpkin. The carriage <laughs> turns into a pumpkin. Yeah. Cinderella doesn't turn into a pumpkin. Well, not Cinderella. The carriage turns into a pumpkin. The horses turn into mice at midnight. Cinderella turns into um bed. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. So we get a scene between Rhonda and Fiona. And Rhonda is another favorite, especially her relationship with Fiona. I'm really glad they make her have a lot of authority at the diner and that she talks back a lot to Fiona. I think it's a pretty interesting dynamic where after the passing of Sam's dad, it's this balance and wrestling of power between these two because of how prominent they were in Sam's dad's life and Sam's as well. Obviously, they don't quite explore this to any death but it's pretty fun to see the back and forth i just really enjoy how well they walked the line when they have ronda and fiona in the same scene especially because they're amazing actors obviously they really elevate the scene when they're on screen together i think i also like how ronda stands up to fiona and doesn't take any of her crap and i think it would have been nice to see sam trying to follow in her footsteps a little bit because obviously ronda has a lot of influence over sam she tries to push her to stand up to Fiona. What bugs me a little bit, and I'm going to jump ahead a little bit again, but in the turning point in this movie where Sam realizes, you know, I'm going to take charge of my own life, what pushes her to do so is remembering what her dad used to say about don't let the fear of striking out keep you from playing the game. Yes, this is a Babe Ruth quote. Yes, and it's something that her dad used to say to her all the time and she by chance remembers it and that pushes her to stand up to Fiona all of a sudden I think it would have been nicer and a way also to build on this relationship that we've seen between Sam and Rhonda so 
far. If Rhonda had been the one to inspire Sam to develop a little bit more as a character. I think it was Rhonda that pushed her. It's just that every time we see Rhonda encouraging Sam to do something, she always uses her dad as a reminder. Like your dad wouldn't want you to be at a diner the day you've got an exam. Your dad wouldn't want you to miss the dance. Your dad, your dad, your dad. And that's when Sam always listens, but it's never like, listen to me. I know what's best for you. I have your best interests at heart. So I would have liked to see that a little bit more. Yeah, I agree with you. But my favorite quote is actually from the scene between Rhonda and Fiona, which is, I'm a very appealing person. <laughs> and the way that Sam and Rhonda make fun of it yeah. is actually is a great indication that they're really close and yeah. they make fun of Fiona behind her back. But we also see Austin and his friends at the diner. And like we've mentioned, they bully Sam pretty harshly. We also get the line laxatives don't qualify as a food group and isn't that just the 2000s rolled up into one eating disorders Ooh. galore and making a habit to make fun of them <laughs> yeah good times right i can taste the nostalgia that was sarcastic just in case <laughs> we also see austin break up with shelby cummings and she asks are you in love with someone else and he answers i think so and i cringed so hard. The whole scene is so hard to watch because he not only breaks up with her in front of everybody, but he also does it on the day of the dance. That's such a mean thing to do. Oh, right. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. It didn't occur to me until this watch either, but I realized this is the evening they're meant to be going to the dance and he breaks up with her a couple of hours beforehand. I understand that Shelby, we're kind of supposed to hate her. Yeah. But he's still being, he clearly doesn't think much of her. Yeah, he looks down on her and yeah. I can't help but feel like that has something to do with the fact that she's traditionally feminine, the fact that she likes traditionally feminine things and is not afraid to express that I can't help but feel that there's a bit of internalized misogyny under there I think it's also unfair to not point out that this is pretty much the view of the movie as well they paint most of the antagonists as traditionally feminine characters and that's a shame yeah and what's even worse to me is that while the movie paints these qualities in a negative light there's sam who in her daily life is quite quote-unquote ordinary she gets all prettied up for the dance and almost as a performance for the male gaze and so there's this really hypocritical outlook on women and how we're just never enough because on one hand there's Shelby and Fiona who are over-the-top feminine and they're painted as evil and then there's Sam who is more understated but of course she's not enough for Austin as she is because he never notices her until she's all dressed up yeah. and appears before him as Princeton girl so that's just the cherry on top of the misogyny cake yeah it's very again I hate to use this phrase but of the time it's really telling of what our perspective was yeah especially when the characters who are representing this point of view are characters that we're meant to like. And you know, I think it's safe to say that this internalized misogyny, I guess, makes for boring characters and shitty storytelling because yep. the characters that we're drawn to are these other ones, are Fiona. and Yeah, and I think we're drawn to them because... They feel so free. Yeah, and they're not pretending to be good. The way the good characters have these underlying really toxic traits 
the antagonists, on the other hand, they're meant to be evil, but we recognize that the traits being demonized are actually a symptom of misogyny. I think the only exception is Carter, obviously. But again, he is so free. It's like you said, he isn't afraid to be who he is, and that's why we're so drawn to him. If Sam isn't caught up in the sphere of how people see her, then she would have been a much more compelling character. But after the kids leave, Zoro enters. <laughs> Carter is all dressed up for the Halloween dance and he's there to pick Sam up. You know, Sam is reluctant to go because she's promised Fiona to stay and work. But Rhonda's there and she tries to tell Sam to go and meet her quote-unquote true love. Is that how she puts it in the scene? Yeah, that's how Carter and Rhonda both describe it, that she should go meet her <laughs> true love, which was a little bit frustrating for me because I'm a bit tired of seeing relationships glorify to that extent yeah. especially when the characters are so young she barely knows the guy she's been talking to him online for a while she doesn't even know his real name and they're touting him as the true love so it's a little bit fast for my taste but. yeah i'm putting my old man hat on and i'm gonna say kids these days need to learn internet safety <laughs> <laughs> the idea of meeting your true love at 16 17 is terrifying especially with everything else going on during that period in our lives but you know setting aside our fears <laughs> commitment issues aside <laughs> we have the dance or the montage before the dance where Rhonda and Carter help Sam find a costume for the dance. Yeah, and they go to a costume shop and Rhonda promises the guy who runs the shop a month of free breakfast to get them in after hours. And I have to say, that is such a good deal. Like, I want a month of free breakfast. Hello. also feel like that's a secret F you to Fiona. <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> because she's like, whatever. I don't care if Fiona makes a profit. Do you think it was a proportionate pay not at all right when he said a month i was like are you lending her 15 costumes <laughs> just one costume for one night and he had to stay open an extra couple of minutes i don't think so because they have a montage where she tries out a lot of costumes so i think it was a couple hours maybe that's actually my next point is it could have been five minutes if sam had just picked an outfit i feel like she yeah. unnecessarily cycled through so many different ones yeah. there are so many great costumes there just pick one and she didn't end up picking one anyway i know we end up not getting something from the costume shop because Rhonda has a dress in mind instead but i still think she should have just gotten something from the costume shop me too as beautiful as the dress is it would have been funner to pick a costume this was literally my thought there are so many fun costumes in that shop why didn't she just pick one? And why did she have to go with a pretty princess dress? Because if it were me, I would want it to be something that shows my personality. And I would totally go meet Nomad dressed like a lemon or something. It'd be fine. It'd be funny. <laughs> a lemon. I guess that's not her personality. Yeah, yeah. She's a perfect pretty little princess. That's her personality. I'm just sour about it. That's why I would go as a lemon. So they go to Rhonda's instead. And Rhonda gives her a straight up wedding dress to go to a costume party. Our commitment issues are flaring up again. <laughs> If this doesn't say pushing her into the true love thing, what does? It's a freaking wedding dress. <laughs> she goes on a blind date with a guy and showed up in a wedding dress. Can you <laughs> imagine? 
So I like that Rhonda has a backstory though, that she has a past marriage. I just like it when characters come to us fully formed. Okay, I know that some people do this, but I found it interesting that Rhonda was the kind to have a dress saved for a future wedding. It is a nice insight into who Rhonda is as a person. Mm -hmm. It paints her as hopeful and pretty optimistic. And I liked that peek into her character. Yeah, and it was a nice opportunity for Sam to get to know more about her as well. Because I feel like she looked a little bit surprised when Rhonda mentioned that she had the save for her next attempt down the aisle. It was a nice bonding moment. Sam also has this line where she says that Rhonda has a knack for taking something simple and making it beautiful, which obviously is supposed to be in a way about Sam taking this simple girl, quote unquote, and making her beautiful. And her role here is the fairy godmother. Though I think a criticism here could be that Rhonda is one of those characters that are very dependent on the main character and I don't think that's an unfound claim but the fact that her character has this backstory and clearly a full life with the people at the diner makes her less of a one-note character who's only there to help Sam. I think they could have made her even more well-rounded but she does come off the screen as pretty fully formed and not entirely dependent on Sam to me at least. I had the same perception of Rhonda because when I think of her I can think of seeing that Sam wasn't even in where it was just her and Fiona or her and everyone else from the diner and she has enough of a leg to stand on without needing Sam. I do have a pettier criticism though because Sam says that line about taking something simple and making it beautiful while she's holding this necklace with a bottle cap (laughs) as the locket and it just looks like she punched a hole in a bottle cap and just put a chain through it. It's a very 2012 DIY jewelry. Yeah. I mean, ahead of its time, because this was 2004. Sure. <laughs> Anything else might have been a little bit more supportive of Sam's point. So we finally get to the dance. And I think it's announced over the speakers or something that the teachers are the ones to choose the homecoming queen and king. That (laughs) came off as so weird to me because usually it's voted by students, obviously. And it seems dependent on the costume. It's like it's a costume contest and a homecoming king and queen court. Why did they have to mush the two concepts together? Yeah, it's a bit muddled. They should have just stuck with the costume contest because that makes sense with the Halloween party. So we get to see all the different costumes here the boys planned to go as the three musketeers but austin is a total dick and ditches them and puts on a prince charming (laughs) costume instead even the boys were like the fuck is wrong with you while i am glad that he left them hanging because that's what they deserve it also just is another example of him being a completely self-involved selfish (laughs) jerk dude you couldn't have texted i mean you've been texting with this random girl for (laughs) months and you couldn't have dropped your shitty bed friends a couple texts he saw them at the diner earlier that day (laughs) as well he could have just said hey by the way just so you know i'm totally planning on a different costume here shelby cummings and her friends they're angels a modern take on the angel thing i really want to try on that angel costume that shelby wears it's so cute oh yeah it is cute 
But so to make sure that she gets back in time, they set an alarm on her phone to set off before midnight. It made me so anxious that he set the alarm 15 minutes before midnight as well. That is not enough time. I know. Why not just set it way earlier? I don't understand. I would have set it for at least 1130. And even that is pushing it because you need time to leave the party, get in the car, drive and get there. Bad planning on everyone's part. (laughs) And when it's time for her to descend the stairs she takes off the cape and is in her dress and crucially she's wearing a mask that they found at the costume shop so no one knows that she's quote-unquote diner girl Nomad asks to meet her under the disco ball at a specific time. And the first guy who approaches her is Terry. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And I do like the Nomad fake out with Terry. I thought it was fun. It's a chance for us to see how Sam reacts because obviously she doesn't know. And I don't think she dismisses the idea right away. Like she's not mean about it or anything. So I think that speaks positively to her character. Although when Austin does appear, the both of them totally disregard Terry, which I I thought was pretty mean so my opinion about sam went up and <laughs> back down well my take on that scene is that she treated terry and austin the exact same way in the sense that she couldn't look past her preconceived notion about either of them because when she thought nomad was terry she was like oh i don't think it's gonna work out i don't think i'm into you and when she found out it was austin she was also like i can't <laughs> date austin ames that's a good point it's not like she was thrilled that it's the popular guy instead of the sci-fi that's a very good point actually she was bummed that it was both of them So Austin and Sam end up going to talk outside, but while they do that, the party's still going on and we do see little glimpses of it. One of the first things we see is this awful scene where David, one of Austin's friends, is sexually harassing Shelby Cummings and it is so fucked up. It's just thrown in there casually, some casual sexual harassment and this kind of behavior is just seen as pretty regular and that's pretty awful. (laughs) We don't get any sort of acknowledgement of it after Afterwards, either no resolution the character doesn't face any consequences for what he does but at least in the moment carter jumps in and helps shelby zoro to the rescue <laughs> while all this is going down sam and austin are bonding outside sam and austin decide to play 20 questions although it's not a back and forth it's just austin asking sam questions all his questions somehow relate back to him in that they all serve to confirm his biases against women so he asks her whether she would rather eat a rice cake or a Big Mac and because Sam chooses a Big Mac that somehow makes her a more desirable person in Austin's eyes it's just more misogyny And Austin telling her all of these sweet nothings, like how he'd remember her eyes he ever saw them, how he would have remembered her if they'd ever met before. And it all comes out as such backhanded compliments because he has seen her before. So we already know that's not true. We already know that he saw those eyes and he does not remember. Because she even tells him that they have met before, yet he still... And he still says it! Yeah. He says it right after! I'm like, Austin, honey, use your brain to listen to what <laughs> she's telling you. Yeah, and I guess this brings up Austin not recognizing Sam, even though he's met her, he's talked to her. I don't know that it reflects very positively on him. Because, yeah, it's true, she's wearing a mask, even her stepsisters can't recognize her, but no one interacts with her as closely at the party as Austin does. 
he should be able to place her, but he doesn't. So I just feel like this is another instance of him being so self-absorbed that he just has not noticed Sam at all. It also says a lot about how he doesn't care to pay attention to the people around him. Mm -hmm. And you could even take this farther and say he doesn't care to pay attention to people with Sam's job. To him, that's just white noise. Point is, he's just not a great character and yeah. every passing moment just confirms that. Yeah, it's almost hilarious how much of a failure the way they wrote Austin is. Yeah, I think the conclusion here is clear. Austin is the real villain of the story. <laughs> but we finally get the scene where Sam's rushing home and she goes back to the party and we hear through the speakers that it's time for the winners and lo and behold, it's Prince Charming and Cinderella. And can you imagine losing the costume contest to Prince Charming and Cinderella that is not a good costume and it's not even a little bit creative. They didn't even do anything fun with it. I would have been livid. Yeah, I think the stepsisters even had a more fun costume. But she goes to find Carter because he's her ride and... Ah, yes. <laughs> he and Shelby are having a little moment. He's had this crush on Shelby Cummings for the entire movie since his entrance. Yeah. If I was Carter, I'll, I'll toss you the keys. Yeah, exactly. And the whole time they're driving home, she is encouraging Carter to speed because at the same time, her stepmom and stepsisters are also on the way home. So she's trying to race them. I feel like if she had just driven herself, we could have avoided a lot of stress. <laughs> this is a sequence that's pretty fun. Mm -hmm. One of the stepsisters steps on the gas and her foot gets stuck. So the car is racing <laughs> down the streets and it's this pure chaos is just so absurd and outlandish that it kind of works. Yeah, I agree. There are a couple more moments like this later on in the film where they really just go for it and it's actually, it ends up being pretty funny and I just wish they had adopted this tone for the whole movie and also applied it to Sam and Austin and just made them more quirky and whimsical and just had fun with it because compared to these moments, the moments between Austin and Sam just come off so bland and forgettable. You have so much more fun just watching the other characters. Yeah, and they don't take themselves too seriously, I feel. Whereas with Austin and Sam, they're trying to get us to like them, I guess. They're trying to make it romantic, but it just comes off as underwhelming. It seems like Sam doesn't make it in time. We only see Fiona arrive until suddenly Sam pops up from the back, all covered in flour, as if she's been there the whole night. And we get a shot of Sam in the diner get up but with the giant poofy dress beneath and I really love that I wish that was like the cover for the movie oh that would have been interesting right yeah I think that would have been a lot more eye-catching it's also very Cinderella because it's like she's forced into this role as the worker in the family and she's trying to break out of it it would have been really cool but what's happening outside is that Carter is still in his car he's just dropped off Sam, now he's relieved. The car has made it. The car is unscratched. Everything is fine. He's just about to back out of the parking lot and leave. But then at the same time, Fiona and the stepsisters are about to leave as well. And they just accidentally veer into his path. And to avoid them, he swerves and hits the sign. And for a moment,
moment, it seems like it's okay. It's just like a tiny dent. But then the whole diner sign comes crashing down onto the car. And it's just a whole disaster. <laughs> I had to close my eyes because I just was remembering <laughs> Carter's dad. <laughs> and how carefully he was polishing the car. I feel like the sign did a little bit of damage there. Every time I think of this movie, this is the scene I think of. Wow, that's high praise. That scene really lands for me. Yeah, it works. The whole absurdity of the scene, it just works. And it makes it funny rather than being too much. Yeah. It just somehow works. The next day, we're back to school and the Cinderella mystery has taken over the whole place. We see next scene with Austin and he's talking about girls who are or aren't real and it comes off as more misogynistic than him caring about Sam specifically. I just, what, they can't give him one line that's just, like, he could say anything. He could say, like, I love pottery and it would have been better. <laughs> So Sam and Carter are talking about whether or not she should tell Austin that it was her as Cinderella and she says this line where she would like to cling to the dream instead of ruining it with reality. And it shows how much Sam has forgotten the Babe Ruth quote that her father lives by mm -hmm. and that's kind of ruled her life so far ever since her dad passed. It's like that sentiment died with him. And I think it's in line with everything we've seen about Sam so far that she's become quite defeated. And I think it makes for a nice contrast when we finally see her remember the life lesson that her dad taught her. See, here's another thing they could have done where Sam is in this quote-unquote rut and Austin has been complacent for a lot of years in his recent life. And what they found in each other is this drive to grow and become the people they want to be instead of what the people around them have made them into and I mean I guess it's already alluded that that is part of their connection but the only growth we see is on Sam's part I wish we had seen them specifically driving each other into this change in that case the relationship would have been a lot more mutually supportive and I feel like it would have been a lot healthier because as it is it just feels like Sam is Austin's therapist and he he just vents at her and gets her advice. I'm a little bit dubious about how much he actually knows and cares about her as a person because he knows nothing about her situation, I feel like. What do you know about her struggles? Sam says that she's never gonna reveal her identity unless Carter reveals his to Shelby and you know this totally supports your theory of him being pretty true to himself and pretty unafraid to show the world who he is yeah and he doesn't even doubt for a second that Shelby would be hesitant to go out with him because of who he is and he totally goes for it I really like the scene actually at least Carter comes out of it all no longer head over heels for Shelby I think yes. he needed that you know he needed to get over her yeah this was a good turning point for Carter where he realizes that I think he's been more in love with the idea of Shelby than the actual person and I almost expected Shelby to be harsher I thought she would totally take him out right in front of her friends but she takes him to the side and she gives him an excuse at least even though it's clearly bullshit but she tries to cushion the blow a little at least yeah so we get to the car wash and at this point the stepsisters have found out that Sam is Cinderella because they saw her emails when she left her computer unlocked and 
they decide to use that private information to convince Austin that it's them, that they're Cinderella. He asks them what Cinderella left behind, and they start guessing, and one of them says a purse, and the other says a fish. <laughs> Again, this is so absurd that it's so funny. Yes, exactly. It's so out there, and so the last thing you would expect, that it just somehow becomes funny. And I also really liked the visuals in this scene, because the stepsisters show up, and one of them is with wearing red and sitting in a green car and the other one is wearing green and sitting in a red car and it's just so almost clownish that it somehow works i feel like every scene the sisters are in is so weird that it just works this movie is pretty visually engaging it's bright and lively yeah i like the association they tie with fiona and pink so the house becomes pink, the diner becomes pink, Fiona is often wearing all pink, she's got a pink tanning bed. This use of color that's pretty fun. Maybe not clever, but fun. Exactly. And the diner is such a fun setting. Yeah, that's true. It's very recognizable. One of my favorite things about movies is actually set design because you want to be sucked into this world and you want it to have a certain look, a certain feel. And I think this movie does pretty well at nailing the look that they were going for. Yeah, I guess in a way, it's almost a compliment that I didn't notice anything because everything just fits so well and it serves as a really perfect backdrop for even the absurd moments and the story it helps me believe what's you know with the scene that's about to happen for example i would be very doubtful and you know be like okay that would never happen but somehow the settings i think they help but what actually happens in the car wash is that <laughs> the sisters get into a fight they end up going through the car wash with the cars and they get hot wax poured all over them they come out looking like <laughs> Angelica's doll from Rugrats. <laughs> and there's this really funny part where they are screaming their heads off in the car wash. But <laughs> yeah. all we see is Austin sitting there and there's a faint scream in the background and he's sort of looking around. It's clear the expression on his face is like, what is, do I hear something? And that bit of contrast was really funny. Yeah, and then he dismisses it and goes back to brooding. <laughs> of course he does. <laughs> and we get that talk at the diner between Sam and Austin, or rather, Austin talks <laughs> yeah. at Sam. It's kind of painful to watch because Sam is trying to break through and finally tell him this thing that she's been keeping a secret. And he's just not there. He's just in his own little world. He doesn't see her. Okay, maybe... In the beginning, we could give him the benefit of the doubt and say, okay, he's only seen her in the diner for a little bit. So when he sees her as Cinderella or as Princeton girl, rather, okay, maybe he won't place her immediately. But then he interacts with her again face-to-face -face at the diner, and he still doesn't realize that it's her. Yeah. Even though she's saying all these really similar things that they've already talked about before, her voice is really distinctive. So I just feel like he only will pay attention to Princeton Girl, but he doesn't give a damn 
about Sam. He doesn't actually like Princeton Girl. He likes someone who wants to listen to him. Yeah. Which is fine in the sense that, you know, he's never had anyone who actually wants to listen to him. His Fair. dad is clearly dismissing all of his concerns, all of his interests. But that doesn't mean that you like Princeton Girl. It means you just need better friends. Yeah, I think he's misreading whatever feelings he has for Princeton Girl. Because you're right, he just wants someone who will listen to him. And that's why he finally gives Sam the time of day because, well, partially because she's listening to what he has to say and what she is saying is seemingly confirming what he's thinking he just wants someone to confirm and validate his feelings what's sad to me is that the scene following this sam tells carter that they had a talk and i'm like honey you guys didn't talk (laughs) and it's unfortunate that we were supposed to see this as them connecting. Yeah, there was no connection. But during the pep rally, oh dear god, the stepsisters have gone to Shelby Cummings and her friends and fabricated this whole story about how Sam deliberately broke up Shelby and Austin. They devised this whole plan to humiliate Sam in front of the whole school and it's very, I guess, in line with the rest of this movie. It's a very over-the-top evil scheme where they basically reveal the whole story but in a very twisted way in the form of a play my main thought during this scene is why is everyone so amused by what's happening because i feel like in real life people would have just been confused about what was going on because this is supposed to be a pep rally and all of a sudden they're telling the story about a poor girl who wanted to be a princess but she wasn't good enough she was just a diner girl and i feel like in real life were this to happen people would have just been baffled (laughs) yeah i agree with you i've always hated the scene It's so hard to watch. It's incredibly mean. This is like some next level bullshit. They're kind of also making fun of Austin, right? In a way. And Austin is supposed to be pretty well loved. I'm just a little Mm -hmm. confused by the scene, actually. I don't understand what Austin is thinking in the scene. The way I read it, is that he wants to help her, but he doesn't know how. And actually, this is the only part of the scene that I liked and thought was realistic in that he feels bad but he doesn't immediately jump to her rescue because that's who he is. He can't stand up to his classmates and his friends, no matter how horrible they're being. So I feel like this is a little glimpse into the conflict that he should have been facing this, that I guess he has been feeling this whole movie. I feel like this is the only part of the movie where I felt like he was finally struggling a little bit. Yeah. He has this image he has to uphold, but then he also cares or thinks he cares about Princeton Girl. So I just wish this struggle had been a little bit more emphasized throughout the movie. And then at last, we finally see him stop being fake Austin and finally be himself and stand up for the right values. That would have made him a more redeemable character, I think. In the scene, we also see Austin's dad, and I don't understand why the dad cares about the sketch. Like, to him, it must also be nonsense. (laughs) Yeah, that's a really good point, because he's constantly tugging at Austin, almost. He's like, he keeps leaning over his shoulder and demanding, like, what is all this about? But I guess that's just another external pressure on him to maintain his image as football star and nothing more. So Sam is sulking at the diner and this is the scene where we finally see her stand up for herself because she's had enough of it. And what prompts this is, or what starts this rather, is Rhonda telling her that in many ways she is 
very lucky she has people who believe in her. The only person who doesn't believe in her is herself. And to me, this is less an uplifting moment than it is a moment that shows how blind Sam has been to the people in her corner. Like, I think it's such a disservice to this family that she has that she's been acting like she has no one. Right. It's like you said, Rhonda has been there for her all this time. Like, obviously, it's nice to hear what Rhonda thinks her dad would feel, but it should also matter what Rhonda would want for her. She's the closest thing you have to family right now, the closest thing that you have to a parent. And it's sad to me that so far, at least, she hasn't been treated as if she's worthy of that care and respect yeah and what i don't like about sam is that she's really wishy-washy if whenever fiona tells her to do something she dejectedly does it but then when Rhonda and others at the diner and Carter tell her to do another thing she's like you know what actually you're right i should do that thing and i feel like she doesn't have a backbone of her own to decide this is whose opinion I'm going to respect and this is who I'm going to listen to and this is who I'm going to accept as someone who can guide me in life. All she does is just oscillate back and forth and listen to whoever is around her, whatever they're saying is what she follows. I think it's that she's lost a part of herself when her father passed, right? And this is the problem is that she idolized her dad so much that she was completely lost without him mm -hmm. and she just never picked herself back up again since then yeah the trigger for sam standing up for herself is a guitar on the wall falls and it tears the wallpaper and reveals the quote painted onto the wall that had been covered up which is the babe ruth quote once she decides she's going to take control of her own life she decides to quit working at the diner and after sam everyone else at the diner follows sam as she quits even the customers quit <laughs> out of solidarity they yes. just all walk out because so we already know that the workers at the diner care about sam but with this you really get to see how genuine their feelings are but also i found it kind of funny how even the customers leave as if they also are just there <laughs> for sam <laughs> i think this would have been a really great way of giving sam more of a personality if she interacted a bit more with these customers and she knew who the regulars were and what their orders are and she knew stuff about their lives and like almost in comical detail if she was like yeah hey is your cat still making that squeaking noise and instead of just like watching her just sort of walk around with a plate of pancakes or scrubbing the floors if we saw her interact with these people a little bit more i think that would have made this scene a little bit funnier but also would have given sam more of a personality for sure and the scene would have been much sweeter because we have this emotional connection to the diner patrons so we finally get to the climax which is the game sam decides that now that she's got it's fine <laughs> she's gonna go and confront austin as well so what she does is she storms into the locker room to me the scene is really cringy it is cringy it's hard for me to watch i think it's because everyone is watching and to me this is something so private see even shelby had the decency to pull carter yes! aside even when there were just two people there but sam just puts austin on blast in front of 
all his teammates, which is a little bit harsh. Yeah. Maybe that's the push he needed because he does care about his image a lot and he's been trying to maintain it in front of the same people. But it just, I understand that she's frustrated with him, but it just shows a disregard for the way he feels and for his comfort zone. I especially don't like that it's the boys' locker room. It's a very private place i also feel like the speech is a little lackluster i don't think it's (laughs) the line i think that really gets me is waiting for rain in this drought Mm. pointless and disappointing maybe i'm the only one who feels this way but it's very like third grade metaphor kind of thing she should have quoted tennyson might have worked (laughs) better for her I'm not totally convinced that this is what would get Austin to change his mind. In this scene, he's also starting to say something and I can't fathom what he could possibly say. I guess maybe he's just trying to explain, give me a chance, I'm trying. But I feel like Sam does the same thing in a way to Austin that he did to her before in the diner scene where he just talked at her and now she's just talked at him and left and not let him say his piece. I feel like that's the climax of this whole movie and the resolution. It's just Sam standing up for herself to Fiona, to Austin. And the getting Austin part is almost like just icing on the cake. Because at that point, it doesn't really matter whether or not she gets Austin. Yeah, I agree. Sam gets closure, basically. And it doesn't have to be that she gets together with Austin for that to happen. So Carter is there and he's about to go to the game. But... My question is, why does Carter want to go to the game? I don't really understand. Yeah, it comes kind of out of nowhere. He doesn't (laughs) even know the rules. (laughs) Yeah. But it was really sweet. They have a little moment. Yeah, it was really lovely and genuine. And you can see Carter really cares about her. And she cares about him. So Carter and Sam go to watch the football game and the pressure is on Austin's shoulders. The whole crowd is chanting his name and Sam feels really uncomfortable, understandably. So she decides that she is going to leave and Austin notices that she is on her way out and he just abandons the game. The only thing I could think during the scene is that it takes Sam such a long time (laughs) to walk through the crowd. Like I know we need a moment moment for Austin to have his epiphany but no way it took her that long to just get to the stairs she must have been walking in slow-mo yeah <laughs> I actually don't hate this moment when Austin goes after Sam mid-game it strikes a different chord for me than when <laughs> Sam is yelling at Austin in public in the locker yeah, room yeah it says a lot without saying anything yes. I like the way Austin is looking out at the audience and he only sees Sam the look on his face is the first moment of genuine emotion that I can place with him so I think it's really great actually that there's no dialogue in this bit because I think that's what makes it more powerful because I feel like they would have just ruined it if they tried (laughs) to add some kind of deep dialogue which they do right after when Austin's dad tries to stop him from leaving and here is the textbook line they literally (laughs) have the lines you know you're throwing away your dream it's so bad why just phrase it any other way these are the exact words people use (laughs) to make fun of this trope obviously it's clear throughout the movie that they are able to write clever witty dialogue now and then exactly definitely not one of the film's most original moments so austin runs after her and they kiss And it starts raining. A little on the heavy-handed side, but I'll give it to them. I kind of like it. (laughs) Yeah, only because 
the drought has been alluded to throughout the movie. Yeah, over and over and over again. I wish Sam hadn't said it in the locker room. I feel like that would have made it less obvious because the drought actually underscores her waiting throughout the movie. I feel like this would have been a subtle enough moment. Yeah. They sub a guy in and they win the game. Everyone's just so happy. There's rain, there's kissing, there's football. What else can you want? (laughs) (laughs) What happens as an epilogue is that Sam finds that her dad actually did leave a will and he left everything to Sam. I do have to wonder, if the dad didn't leave anything to his wife and stepdaughters, how much did he really care about them? This is my exact question. The mystery of the dad continues. (laughs) This is my exact question, is why did he leave everything to Sam? It's just as bad if you married this woman and took in her kids and helped raise them and actually not cared enough for them to even leave them anything. So two scenarios come to mind. The first of which is that he just doesn't care what's going to happen to his wife and stepchildren. He just wants to make sure Sam's future is secure, which is just horribly selfish. For sure. The second scenario in my mind is that he just didn't have time to update his will, which is also horrible. But I guess it plays out in Sam's favor and it's just lucky that her stepmother and stepsisters were horrible people and were taking advantage of Sam's father's Although, wait, Fiona's signature is on the will. So she agreed? According to the signature. Maybe she didn't read the whole thing. (laughs) In this epilogue, we also see a shot of Austin and Sam driving off into the sunset together. But I love this shot of Austin clipping her phone back into her shoe. Hmm, That's kind of cute. I really liked the last sentence as well, which was uh, something along the lines of happily ever after, at least for now. Hey, I'm only a freshman. (laughs) Another segment that we like to do on this podcast is absurd conclusions. So our first conclusion is that Austin must actually be really bad with the ladies. (laughs) I mean, he doesn't seem like he knows how to talk to Shelby when he was breaking up with her. And he even confesses that he might have feelings for somebody else. Yeah, smooth. (laughs) And I suspect this is why he wanted to keep his distance from the horde of girls (laughs) lining up to see him after the party. What if this is actually what he was trying to tell Sam when Sam went barging into the locker room? He's like, wait, let me explain. I'm just really nervous. I'm just really bad at talking to girls. You know what, in that case, I do feel a little bit of sympathy for the guy. So another absurd conclusion is that Carter is actually really unlucky. You <laughs> know he's a careful driver because he refuses to speed when he's driving Sam home. But somehow he's totaled three cars before this. So Carter is a magnet for freak accidents. <laughs> It's also why when he's talking to Shelby, he he just gets drenched by the pool water. <laughs> you know what? I feel like we have the wrong absurd conclusion when it comes to Carter. He's actually insanely lucky because he totaled three cars, but he survived. He You're almost right. got hit by that gigantic sign, but he survived because he got out of that car to check on that little dent. When he falls during his fight with that guy, he survives that fall while the other dude gets a pumpkin stuck on his head. Oh, that's true. Our third and final conclusion is that it was Fiona's evil scheme all along to target Sam's dad and lure him in to marry him for his wealth. If you look really closely, 
I'll bet you can see Fiona in the background of the montage of Sam and her dad. Just when they're playing baseball, when they're at the diner, you can see Fiona standing way in the background wearing a trench coat and a hat and binoculars watching them preparing to make her attack. She's in the bushes. (laughs) Yeah, she stacked her stepdaughters on top of each other (laughs) and they're all in a trench coat. Um, So now that we've discussed this movie in excruciating detail, (laughs) I think I still enjoy this mostly as much as I did when I was younger. But the whole Austin thing really bugs me this time around. It's hard to get past how awful Austin's storyline is. I've had a similar experience. I still enjoyed this movie, but for completely different reasons than the reasons I would have as a child. I think as a kid, the focus was Cinderella finding her prince, but now that I'm looking at this movie from a fresh perspective, it's less about the prince, it's more about finding those little moments of whimsy that the movie manages to squeeze in and surprisingly it comes from these characters that we're supposed to hate and that I did probably dislike as a kid but as a more mature viewer I can now see that they have more personality and charm than Sam and Austin combined so I do still like this movie but for completely opposite reasons so would you actually recommend this movie though? Surprisingly, I think I wouldn't. I don't think the movie really delivers really well on what it promises because it seems like it's going to be a modern take on a classic fairy tale. But there were so many more creative ways that the movie could have gone. And we see glimpses of this with the witty dialogue and these really absurd events that somehow end up being really funny but overall i feel like the rest of it is just not worth putting yourself through so no i wouldn't recommend this movie what about you i think i still would that's simply down to the performances of the characters fiona Rhonda, and carter to me they're totally worth watching this movie but yeah i still recommend this movie knowing all of its faults and it's just so much fun So that's all for our episode on A Cinderella Story. Next time, we'll be discussing Morning Glory. If you have any thoughts to share on the movie, send them in at graveyard underscore slot on Twitter and Instagram, or email us at thegraveyardslot at gmail.com so we can share on the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Graveyard Slot. <laughs>